Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Fifth grade, and down below you may leave now to go to Children's Church. Hebrews chapter... Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3, and then we will get to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to kind of do a, just a little bit of a journey here this morning leading up to our text. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question this morning, and I'm going to see how many of you raised your hand. This may be interesting. How many of you have ever been to Antarctica? Well, there's one person up there. All right. <laughs> you know, it's the icy continent that claims the South Pole. And in 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton, maybe you've heard of him, he and a crew of 27 men set sail on an exploration to make history. They wanted to be the first group to actually cross the Antarctic continent on foot. And maybe you've heard of the ship's name that they sailed on. The ship's name is called Endurance. And after a month at sea, endurance became trapped in an ice flow. It was being crushed by these huge icebergs. And what happened was, this would it would set off two years of an amazing journey of courage, of strength, of leadership. In October of 1915, Shackleton gave orders to abandon the ship because the ship was sinking very quickly into the ice. And so what they had to do is they had to set up camps on these ice flows, moving icebergs. They had to ward off the cold, bitter weather, a leopard seal attacks, one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. The closest island that was inhabitable was 250 miles away. And then in April of 1916, the ice flow actually broke into two, and they were forced to get on lifeboats. And five days of an adventure on these lifeboats in what was probably the most harrowing experience, they finally set foot on solid ground, Elephant Island, after 497 days, either at sea or floating on an iceberg. It's ironic that the boat was called Endurance because this is what these men actually ended up characterizing. Endurance, courage, perseverance, bravery in the midst of some overwhelming opposition, in the midst of uh, some extreme situations. Courage, endurance, suffering. Those are scary words, aren't they? Courage, endurance, suffering. And we admire those, those traits in people from a distance, don't we? That person has courage. That person has endurance. I, I, I like the way that person suffers, but don't ask me to have those things in my life. I don't want to have to be put in a situation where I have to show courage. I don't want to have to suffer. I don't want to have to endure anything. We shrink back in fear a lot of times, don't we? We become afraid. We lack courage. And that's exactly what's going on in this little church in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a church that is experiencing fear. 
They are being imprisoned for their faith. They are losing their property. They are being extremely persecuted. They are suffering majorly. And they were tempted to just walk away from Christianity. They were tempted just to chuck it all and say, this Christianity thing, this this showing allegiance to Christ, this standing up for Jesus thing, it's not worth it. Let's just go back to being Jews and, and let's just go back to our comfortable lifestyle. Let's not experience any persecution or hardship for the sake of the gospel. And so this whole book of Hebrews is written to encourage disheartened, fearful Christians who are on the brink of walking away from their faith. They had shrunken in fear. They were wanting to capitulate. They were wanting to throw in the towel. They didn't even want to meet together as a church. They were afraid to name the name of Christ. And so we see a repeated warning, a repeated encouragement throughout the book of Hebrews. So let's just look at Hebrews chapter 3, first of all, before we get to our main text. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Let's see what the writer says from the very beginning portions of this book. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says, hold on firm to the end. Don't give up. Don't give in. Then look at chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your belief. Hold fast to Christ. Don't give up. Don't give in. Then chapter 6, 11 and 12. Chapter 6, 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't be sluggish. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hold fast. Don't shrink in fear. And then look at chapter 10 for just a moment. Chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. We see the same theme again. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, they were afraid to even be together as church. They didn't want to assemble together. And then look at verses 23 through 29. I'm sorry, 32 through 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. Right before chapter 11, where we've been hanging out the past few weeks. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we come to Hebrews chapter 11, 
And it's not in a vacuum. Hebrews 11 does not stand on its own. It's part of a larger unit of thought. All the way through this, this letter, the writer has been encouraging these struggling Christians who are losing their lives, who are being in prison, who are having their property confiscated, who are struggling majorly. And he says all along, don't throw in the towel. Hold fast. Stay strong. Endure. Remain steadfast. Because there was a temptation to, to throw in the towel. A temptation to not be brave. A temptation to not have courage. A temptation to not endure. To not face these sufferings. And so now we come to this portion in Hebrews chapter 11 where it focuses on Moses. Now we know a lot about Moses, don't we? Probably one of the greatest men to ever live. A hero to both Christians and to other religions. And there's a lot we could say about Moses, right? I mean, there's many things that we could focus upon. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. God showed up to him at the burning bush. He led millions of people through the Exodus, through the passing of the Red Sea. He saw the manna and the quail. He was called the friend of God. Moses had this relationship with God that no other person during his lifetime experienced. Moses was a uniquely gifted leader. And yet with all of this, with all the things that we find about Moses' life, there's just this one little section that the writer of Hebrews focuses upon. So, so what's, the, what's, what's the writer of Hebrews wanting us to focus upon in the life of Moses? What's the overwhelming feature of Moses' faith that he wants to show us for this morning? And it's simply this. This is the overarching issue that's related to Moses, and it's an issue related to us. Authentic faith does not crumble in fear when faced with overwhelming oppositions. It doesn't crumble with fear in the face of overwhelming oppositions. So let's see this unfold this morning. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 11, where we've been camping out the past few weeks, verses 23 through 27. We're going to look at Moses again next week, so we're going to spend two weeks on Moses, but this is a a unit of thought here. So starting in verse 23, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." I want you to notice the bookends here in verses 23 and 27, kind of a sandwich here. What do we see in verse 23? His parents were not, what? Afraid. In verse 27, we find that Moses was not afraid. So bookend is this whole issue of not being afraid, not having fear. And the author of Hebrews is focusing on the life of Moses here to show that he was a man who had tremendous courage, tremendous faith, in the midst of overwhelming opposition. He did not crumble in fear. And let me just tell you this. We may not live in a world of extreme persecutions like those in the the, the Hebrews. We may not have our property confiscated. We may not be being thrown in jail for, for our faith, like what we see here in the Hebrews. But there will come a time, Christian, let me just tell you, when you will have to show some backbone in this culture for being a Christian. 
you will be faced with temptation, you will be faced with hostility, you'll be faced with opposition, and there will come a time when you're going to have to stand up and say, I am a Christian, and I'm not going to crumble in fear in the face of overwhelming opposition. I'm going to stand up and be counted as of one who has great courage. And so what we see here, this overarching theme here of Moses did not crumble in fear, we see three features of faith. Now we can see this in the text because they all start with by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. Three features of this whole overarching theme of not crumbling in fear. So what's the first one? Here's the first one. Authentic faith requires radical courage. Authentic faith requires radical courage. Now, in verse 23, the author doesn't focus necessarily on Moses, but he focuses on Moses' parents. And we see something about Moses' parents here in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, what's so courageous about this? They hid Moses for three, three, three months. Well, let's go back like we've always done. Keep a finger in Hebrews and turn back to Exodus this time. We're, we're finally out of Genesis. Go back to Exodus chapter 1. Keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going to come back to that. We're going to be flipping between Hebrews and Exodus, but we've got to go back and look at the original text here. Exodus 1, 15 through 22, to find out the edict of the king. What, what did his parents do in relationship to the king's edict? Exodus 1.15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh made an explicit order here, didn't he? Any Hebrew boy that's born, throw him in the Nile River. Now, he could have died by drowning. You've seen those Discovery Channel's things. He could have died by being eaten by a crocodile or a hippo. We really don't know. But it was a vicious and brutal edict of the king to actually kill all firstborn male children. He was the most powerful man in the world. Whatever Pharaoh said, you did. You did not refuse Pharaoh. You did not go against Pharaoh. If you went against Pharaoh, there were repercussions. You could be thrown in jail or you could actually have your own life taken. So for you to stand up to the king is a big deal. And so the Hebrews are faced with an issue here, a moral dilemma. Do we kill our firstborn children because we're afraid of the king's edict or do we follow the Lord? Moses' parents acted by faith. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they knew that God was faithful. They, they hid Moses for three months. Now, we see two things about their courage. First of all, it says they saw that Moses was a beautiful baby. Moses was a beautiful baby. Now, what in the world does this mean? Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us this, that they saw that he was beautiful. And here in Exodus chapter 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. She saw that he was a fine child. He was a beautiful child. What in the world does this mean? It means that he was good-looking. He was a beautiful little baby. He was uncommonly striking. He was a a nice-looking, cute little baby. Now, many scholars have struggled with this. Well, was there something more than the fact that just Moses was a cute little baby? We really don't know, but a lot of scholars believe that maybe, and this comes from some Jewish traditions as well, that maybe there was a visible mark on Moses that set him apart whether it was a birthmark or there was something that that his parents saw Moses and realized there's something special about this child. God's hand is upon this child. God's favor rested upon this child. Back in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, when Stephen's given a speech before the ruling authorities is about to be stoned, Stephen says this about Moses in his big speech in Acts 7.20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Stephen said that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. So there's something his parents knew about Moses. It's kind of shrouded in mystery. We really don't know. But there is a, there's something there that marked Moses out to be special in the eyes of God. And so they hid him. Now, the second thing the Hebrews text tells us is that they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the rule of the king. They they did not fear man, but instead feared God. They knew that God's sovereign purposes would be worked out. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they did not fear what the king said. They went with what God had led them to do. Now, here's a tough issue. When do you make the choice between standing up for Jesus and facing the consequences? facing the consequences from a governing authority, facing the consequences on the workplace. This is a tough issue. You see, it all boils down to fearing man instead of fearing God. You see, a lot of times we are fearful of what mere men can do as opposed to pleasing God, our Heavenly Father, and letting the consequences fall where they may. Now, living for Jesus requires radical courage. And I could sit here and tell you a bunch of stories about our brothers and sisters all across the world that are suffering for their faith. There are Christians today that are being persecuted, they're being imprisoned, they're being burned, they're being hacked to death for naming the name of Christ. And we need to learn about that. We need to understand our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And we need to hear those stories. But oftentimes, when we hear those stories, it seems so distant, doesn't it? We're not there. We're not experiencing that harsh persecution. So let me make it real personal this morning. Let me talk to students first. Middle school, high school, college students. Let me talk to you for just a moment. Do you show radical courage when your friends want you to go to a party to drink and experiment with alcohol and drugs or or to engage in sexual immorality? Do you show courage when you stand up to your friends? Do you guys know what peer pressure really is, students? It's fearing man. You fear what man thinks of you as opposed to fearing what God thinks of you. And so students, are you willing to just go be part of the crowd, fear man, do what your friends want you to do, or are you going to be a person that stands up? Because following the crowd does not take courage. As a matter of fact, it's very cowardly. Being a Christian, being a radical Christian, being one of courage means you stand up regardless of what the consequences are. So let's stop picking on students for a moment. Let's talk about adults. Do we experience peer pressure? You bet. 
Do we show radical courage when our work associates begin to tell dirty jokes? Or when Christians are made fun of at the workplace and we know we need to stand up and say something? Or when everyone's telling you to cheat in order to get ahead for that promotion? All these things going on at the workplace or with your friends, adults, where you're more concerned about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. But see, Moses' parents weren't concerned with what man could do to them. They were more concerned with pleasing their Heavenly Father and trusting Him. They did not shrink back in fear when faced with overwhelming opposition. Now, let's go back to Hebrews for just a minute. Keep your finger in Exodus. Go back to Hebrews. I know it kind of goes back and forth here. So the first feature is authentic faith requires radical courage. Secondly, let's look here at what Moses does. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now what in the world does this mean? Here's feature number two. Authentic faith suffers loss in order to gain Christ. It suffers loss in order to gain Christ. Now let's continue reading in Exodus. Okay, so flip back to Exodus. We're in Hebrews. Kind of wish you could have a parallel Bible with Exodus and Hebrews right next to each other, but you're going to have to turn your pages. Here we go. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. You guys know this story fairly well, but let's read it. Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. Now, this is a sovereignty of God issue where Moses' mom actually gets to take care of Moses, but there came a point where Moses was adopted into the Egyptian family, the Pharaoh, and he lived in the court. He had all the treasure, pleasure, stuff that Egypt had to offer. He grew up with wealth. He grew up with power. He grew up with prestige. And some scholars believe Moses may have even been poised to take on a high position in the empire. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, which in turn meant that he was part of the royal family. But then Moses does something very, very strange. Exodus 2.11. You may not catch it. Exodus 2.11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Text says he went out to his people. What in the world does this mean, that Moses went out to his people? Scholars have traditionally seen this as Moses' definitive decision to leave the royal court and go associate with his own people. And people, by the way, who were slaves under the harsh taskmasters. 
And that's exactly what Hebrews 24 through 26 says. We, we see here in Exodus that Moses went out. He left the court of Pharaoh and he went out to his people. Now, what did he do when he went out to his people? Now, let's go back to Hebrews and let's look at this in more detail and find out what the writer of Hebrews tells us Moses did when he went out, when he left the court. Verse 24. By faith, he, we're back in Hebrews 11 again. By faith, when Moses was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. He refused. The word for refused there in the original language means he disowned. He renounced. He despised his upbringing, his wealth, his background, his prestige. He gave all of that up in order to go live as a slave. Now think about this. This church in Hebrews is is afraid to meet together. They're afraid to associate together. They don't want to claim the name of Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, look at Moses. He left all of the, the worldly stuff to go back and identify with the people that were being persecuted. A direct indictment on those Christians that were shrinking back in fear. Remember back in verse 25 where he says, not, don't neglect to meet together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. That's what they were doing. And Moses decisively chooses to leave Egypt. Now, why do I have the word decisively? Look there in verse 25. The ESV translates it, choosing rather, rather. In the original language, it's a very strong, it should be, but rather, in a very strong way saying, Moses said, I'm going to leave all that Egypt has to offer. All the health, the wealth, the prosperity, the riches, the prestige, the popularity, all of that I am decisively leaving in order to go be a part of my people who are living as slaves, who are being mistreated. This is amazing because we knew that the Egyptians were ruthless taskmasters. They beat the Egyptians. Why in the world would Moses do such a crazy thing? Let me try to illustrate it the best way I can. Uh, I don't know if you watch The Apprentice. I'm one of those weird people that watches The Apprentice. I like seeing people get fired, okay? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting show in human nature. And so this year, it's not The Celebrity Apprentice. Donald Trump has hired, or not hired yet, but he's gotten a cast of people who are down and out. They're, 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 they're laid off. And so everybody's trying to get hired by Donald Trump. Let's say it gets down to the finale, and there's the person that gets hired to work for Donald Trump. And that person becomes a millionaire. They work for Donald Trump. They get to, to live in the Trump Towers. They've got all the politicians, all the Hollywood elite, everything at their disposal. They are just this, this awesome business person working for Donald Trump, millionaire, all the prestige. And all of a sudden, one day they say, you know what? I'm going to go flip burgers at McDonald's because I really miss that. What would we do? We would look at that person and say, you are an idiot. I mean, let's just be honest. We'd we'd think they're foolish. So do we laugh at Moses? I mean, seriously, you almost want to laugh out loud at Moses and say, you're going to do what? You're going to renounce and leave all that Egypt has to offer to go live as a slave with your own people? What's your motivation, Moses? What's the point? What's the deal here, Moses? He would rather suffer loss to gain Christ. Notice what verse 25 says. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The word enjoy there means to cling to. He didn't want to cling to 
the pleasures of sin. Did Moses have every pleasure his heart's desire could give him? You betcha. Could he have had all the women that he wanted? Yes. Could he have had all the money that he wanted? Yes. Could he have had all the food, delicacies? Could he have had anything his heart's desire wanted? Yes. Everything was at Moses' fingertips. He had ultimate power. Just say the word, Pharaoh's daughter, and it's mine. But notice what it says here. And we need to talk about this because the writer of Hebrews is blatantly honest here. Notice what he says. Then to enjoy the fleeting what? Pleasures of sin. Let me just ask you a question. Is sin enjoyable? And you should be shaking your heads yes. If it wasn't enjoyable, why would so many people do it? Sin is fun. Now don't throw me out of here as a heretic. But don't let anybody tell you that sin's not fun or why would you do it? It's pleasurable. It brings you pleasure. It brings you fun. It's enjoyable. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says here. What word does he put right before that? Fleeting. What does that word mean? Passing. Temporary. Literally in the the original language, for a season. Let me just tell you this. Sin is fun for a season. Sin is fun for a period. Sin is pleasurable for a time, but then what happens? What does sin reap? Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sin is fun for a season. But what does it reap? What's the harvest of that pleasure? Destruction. Now, what's the ultimate sin that Moses could have committed if he stayed in Egypt? The very same sin these Hebrew Christians were struggling with. Idolatry. Apostasy. He would have engaged in life absent of God. He'd be living for his own pleasure. He would have denied the very people that gave him birth. He would have shrunk back in fear and stayed in comfortable Egypt instead of being who he truly was. Who was Moses? An Israelite of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He worshiped the living God. Now notice what verse 26 says. Not only did he renounce his upbringing, not only did he go back and and be treated as a slave, but notice verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ. What in the world does that mean? The reproach of Christ. I think the best way it's said in the Bible is what Paul says in Philippians 3. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as Scubalon, rubbish in the original language. It's a strong word there. I can't translate it here in a family-oriented worship service. In order that I may gain Christ. So what does Moses do? He says, I'm going to give it all up. Everything I have, I'm going to give it up so that I can get Jesus. That's radical. Let me ask you a question, question this morning. Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your pleasure? 
And let me define those terms for just a moment. Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus what you value the most? Is he your preoccupation? Is he what you elevate to the highest place in your life? Is he what everything in your life points to? Is he supremely valuable as your treasure? Everything, everything pales in comparison to, to knowing Christ. He's worth it. Is he your treasure? Secondly, is Jesus your pleasure? In other words, do you enjoy Jesus? Is he your greatest joy? Does he bring you the greatest satisfaction? Do you long for him? Is he your treasure? Is he your pleasure? Now, why in the world would Moses do this? Why would Moses say, I'm chucking it all. I'm refusing to be known as Pharaoh's daughter with all the health, wealth, and, and everything that I have in, Moses, in, in Egypt to go suffer the reproach of Christ? Well, the writer tells us we're not, we're not left guessing. Look at the very last part of verse 26. For, small little word there, purpose. For he was what? Looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. And this word looking conveys a constant, continual, searching, looking, focus. It says in the original language, it really meant a painter or a sculptor who's focusing on their model to make sure that they're drawing it or sculpting it correctly. He was looking for what? What were his eyes constantly fixed upon? The reward. Now, all through Hebrews chapter 11, we know what the reward is, right? It is heaven. He's focused on Jesus. He's focused on heaven. He's focused on his true home. He's focused on the glory of Christ. That's where his focus is. And so he can say no to all these things that the world has to offer because his eyes are fixed on one that truly matters, Jesus. Now, the writer of Hebrews is being a good pastor to his people. What's going on in Hebrews? They're struggling. They're being imprisoned. They're having their property confiscated. All these things. And the writer of Hebrews could come to them and say, you guys need to get it together. But he doesn't do that. He says, look to Moses. Look at the example of Moses. And more importantly, look to the example of Christ. Think about it for a moment. Did Christ suffer? Yes. Did people hate Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus suffer reproach? Yes. Do you think that we as followers of Jesus would have anything less than what our Savior had? If Jesus suffered reproach, we can expect nothing less than to suffer because he is worth it. He's worth it. Because life and a life of sin is only pleasurable for a season, the writer of Hebrews says. But the treasures of this world are only pleasurable for a season. But Christ is eternal, and the glory of Christ is what we're living for. What do we sing this morning? Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Do you believe that? All you have is Jesus, that he is your life. Now, third feature. First, radical courage. Second, suffering loss to gain Christ. Third, authentic faith endures through overwhelming opposition. Endures. Endurance. Notice verse 27. The main verb in verse 27 is Moses endured. But let's read verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, that's the key word there, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It says Moses didn't fear the king's rage. He left Egypt. What does that mean? He didn't fear the king's rage when he left Egypt. Well, here, here's a good question. If you're a Bible student, how many times did Moses leave Egypt? What was the first time he left? Remember the story? He kills the Egyptian buries him in the sand, gets found out, and flees in fear. He leaves Egypt the first time. 
What's the second time he leaves Egypt? Talk about this next week. Passover, crossing of the Red Sea. Which one is it? Is it the first leaving or the second leaving? And that word for leaving there really means to abandon, to forsake. Now, there's scholars who disagree. Some say it's the first time that he leaves. Some say it's the second time he leaves. I know it's a little bit out of order because next week we're going to look at the Passover and the Passover really comes before the Exodus. But I I take a stand and it's talking about the Exodus here. That Moses is talking about when he left, when the nation of Israel left, they did not fear the rage of the king. Because it says this, and, and if you go back to Exodus 2, we'll put it on the screen, 14 and 15. After Moses killed the Egyptian and fled, we find these words. He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was what? Afraid. And thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, this says that Moses was what? Afraid. What does the text in Hebrews say? Moses was not afraid. Now, it doesn't say anything about the rage of the king here, but would killing an Egyptian cause the king to get upset? Yes, murdering an Egyptian would cause the king to get upset. But as we will see next week, there is an event that's going to cause greater rage in the, in the life of the king. The killing of all firstborn sons in Egypt, plus his very own son, is going to cause rage. So I think it's talking about the, 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 the exodus itself, because when the exodus happens, Pharaoh basically says, get out of here. But then later on, God hardens his heart and says, we're going to pursue you hotly. So with Pharaoh and his armies breathing down the neck of the Egyptians as they're leaving through the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses stands up and says, I'm going to be a man of courage. And listen to the words of Moses in Exodus 14, 13 through 14. See if you see the man of courage here. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you seem today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have to only be silent. Sound like a man of courage? God's going to fight for us. God's going to get us through. And it says Moses endured. What did he have to endure? Well, think about the things he had to endure before the Exodus. Going to Pharaoh on ten different occasions and saying, let my people go. And time after time, Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Every time Moses went in there, he had to have the courage to face a man that could kill him. And so he endured time after time, going before the Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, no. He stayed steadfast. Moses stayed fixed. He was unmovable. Why was Moses unmovable? Why was he a man of endurance? Well, the the text tells us. We don't have to guess. Look at the very last part of verse 27. For, there's the purpose word again, for he endured as seeing him who is what? Invisible. Moses saw the invisible God. Now what in the world does this mean? Can we see God? Can any of you guys here see God? If you can see God, come up after service and let me know. I really want to know, because I don't think anybody can see God and live. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 1.17 says this, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and forever and ever. Amen. You see, God is invisible to us, isn't he? But when we go through hardships, it seems like he's the God who's not there. But is he there? His invisible hand of grace, his invisible hand of strength is always there. And that's what Moses did. Moses trusted in the invisible God who can get him through all of these situations. Now, I find it interesting here. Why would Moses focus on the invisible God? 
Wasn't Moses the man that saw God a lot? Saw him at the burning bush. Went up to the mountain, saw it in the cloud. Manna, quail, Red Sea parting, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. All these things Moses got to see like nobody else got to see. But what does it focus upon? Do any of us here get to see the burning bush? Do any of us here get to see a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke? That'd be great in your backyard. God, give me your will. Pillar of fire comes down. There's your will right there. None of us can see God. All of us live by what? Faith. We don't live by sight. Remember, that's what true faith is. Faith is being sure of what we do not see. We walk by faith, not by sight. But guess what? Just because we can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. He is there. His power is there. His presence is there. His hand is there. His, his might is there. He is there. We just can't see him, but his invisible power is there. And so what are the implications of the struggling Hebrew church? They're faced with all types of persecution, all types of struggles, and, and they look at Moses and say, trust in the invisible God. He is the invisible God. Can you see Jesus? No. Can you see the Holy Spirit? No. Can you see the Father? No. We can't see anything, can we? But what do we believe? We believe in the invisible God who's powerful enough to give us courage, powerful enough to help us endure, powerful enough to get us through our sufferings, powerful enough to help us not crumble in fear in the face of overwhelming opposition. F.F. Bruce, that great um, New Testament scholar, said this, Moses paid more attention to the invisible king of kings than to the king of Egypt. Where was Moses' eyes? Were they on Egypt? His eyes were on Jesus. His eyes were on Christ. He was fixed upon the heavenly award. He was fixed upon the invisible God. So let me just ask you a question this morning. What overwhelming obstacles are you facing today? All of you have come into this room and have brought something to the table. Something that you are going through. Maybe it's overwhelming. Maybe it's just peer pressure to fit in, students. Maybe it's the fear of man. Maybe it's just the temptation to not stand up for Christ at the workplace because you don't want to be viewed as a religious fanatic. Maybe it's a, a neighbor or a coworker who always berates you for being a Christian and you just have to endure them. Maybe, it's, maybe some of you have come in here with an insurmountable life experience, a life situation. Something in your life seems insurmountable and you don't know if you're going to get through. Some of you may have come in here and said, you know what, I've had to endure a lot and I'm sick of enduring. I'm tired of it. I don't want to have to endure anymore. All of us have come into this place with something that is overwhelming. It could be small, it can be big, but the the message from the Hebrews here is that God is a God of great strength. God is a God of great power. God may be invisible, but it doesn't mean that he's not there. He is the God who is there in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the problems. We can't see him, but we walk by faith. So do what Moses did. What did Moses do? He kept looking to the prize. He kept looking to heaven. He kept looking to Jesus. He kept his eyes fixed on the invisible God. God may seem distant. God may be invisible. But God is for you. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, God is for you. He's not against you. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 32. Some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And it doesn't just stop there. We have the reason why he can be for us. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I know because life hits you hard, there may be many in this room that are just going through something where you